Well, I told him that uh, when, I'm, when I'm under the clock and under the pressure, it takes me about an hour to do this topic. And when it's turned off, it takes me about 35 minutes. So we should be okay. Okay, well, we're back again to the disputed verses, only this time we're going to change the, uh, change the emphasis just a little to the internal evidence. And just like the angle that we just looked at, uh, this one just reaches out ramifications in all directions, and we're just hitting the, hitting the highlights, really. And it's a really a fascinating study, and so I'm going to share with you at least what time will allow here today. Okay, so when we looked at external evidence, we were saying we're looking at the manuscripts, we're looking at early church fathers, we're looking at, at other features like that. For internal evidence, we're going to actually delve into the language of the book of Mark itself, the actual text of Mark 16, 9 through 20, as compared to other parts of Mark and to other books of the Bible and other features expressed in other books of the Bible. And uh, so that's going to be the focus for this. Now, just to give you an idea of what people are saying about this, uh, the Net Bible, which is a fantastic resource. If you don't know about the Net Bible, you need to look at the Net Bible. It's online. Uh, it's completely free online, and the notes are just extensive. Now, they don't believe verses six, uh, 9 through 20 belong in the text, and that footnote is there, and there's lots of statements about it. But the Net Bible is a great resource. And so anyway, but the footnotes, or part of the notes on this passage on, in the Net Bible say that internal evidence strongly suggests the secondary nature of the long ending the long ending being verses 9 through 20. And it goes on, the vocabulary, syntax, and style are decidedly non-Markan. That's the scholar's way of saying Mark didn't write it. And the evidence is not about the manuscripts, it's not about Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. No, just look at the language, and you can see that Mark surely didn't write it. That's his point. Um, Dumelow, in a commentary on the Holy Bible, page 73, says that internal evidence clearly demonstrates that it cannot have proceeded from the hand of St. Mark. Uh, Dean Henry Alford, and I know I'm taking on the giants here when I bring up someone like this from 140 years ago, says the internal evidence, quote, preponderates vastly against the authorship of Mark. Then Donald Guthrie, page 77, New Testament introduction. But internal evidence combines with textual evidence to raise suspicions regarding this ending. Not quite as strong a language, but still uh, doubtful of the authenticity. Uh, Dean Arthur Stanley, another giant from a previous century, the weakness of the external evidence coincides with the internal evidence in proving its later origin. And then Dr. Daniel Wallace, um, who's a modern critic, and uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace is all over the internet, and I appreciate Dr. Wallace greatly. So this is not a personal attack in anything I'm saying here, but he is one of the big modern-day proponents that these verses are not original. And so he says both transcriptional, meaning scribal, those who copied it, and intrinsic, that is authorial, Mark, the writer, versus someone else, both this transcriptional and intrinsic evidence argue decisively against the authenticity of the longer ending. 
Okay, so that only gives you just a taste of what is said about these verses by the modern day, as well as some from earlier times. Okay, we're going to look at this in the second part here in two parts, four parts, excuse me. Number one, we're going to examine the argument that rises from the abrupt transition between verses 8 and 9. This abrupt trans, well, I'll explain it. Number two, we're going to look at unique words and phrases in verses 9 through 20. Number three, we're going to examine Mark's use of parts of speech in 9 through 20 versus other parts of the book of Mark. And then number four, we're going to discuss just briefly why does this problem exist in the first place. Okay, starting here, abrupt transition between verses 9 and 20. Now, the argument is that between verse 8, or excuse me, uh, whatever, between verses 8 and 9, I'm sorry, abrupt transition between verses 8 and 9. The argument is that when you're reading along in Mark 16, you come up to verse 8, and then when you get to verse, from verse 8 to verse 9, it's kind of like there's some kind of a linguistic speed bump there. And you kind of hit it, and it's kind of a rough bump, and then you go on through the rest of it. And the argument is, well, you know, the original author wouldn't have done something like that. The original author would not have worded himself that way. And so there's an abruptness about this transition that signals to the reader that, well, maybe somebody else really did write this. And well, he, when we look at the manuscripts and the historical and the external evidence, why, sure enough, surely, Mark didn't write this. So that's the concept or the argument about the abruptness between verses 8 and 9. Now there are three factors or three features of this abruptness that I'm going to look at, and there are more that we could, but for the sake of time, I limited it to these three. Number one, the argument is that the subject of verse 9 should be Jesus instead of He. And we'll look at that closely. Number two, part of the abruptness rises from the fact that in verse 9, Mary Magdalene receives a fuller identification after she is already introduced in verse 1. And then number three, and the last one in this category, the words, now when he arose, and the position of the word first in verse 9 would be appropriate to introduce a comprehensive narrative, but they're out of place in a continuation of the narrative of verses 1 through 8. Now, if this doesn't make quite make much sense, we'll explain. But let's start up here. The subject of verse 9 should be Jesus instead of here, he, instead of he, excuse me. So here it is. Verse 9 says, And when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. First, to Mary Magdalene. Now, there are, the argument is basically that, well, really, to make it more smooth, the author would have said, or could have said, if it was the real Mark, he would have said, Jesus instead of he. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now then, what you've got here then is an argument that uh, skirts into the concept referred to as participant reference. This is something that the linguists, uh, the linguists, uh, a term they use in describing. Well, let me let uh, Nicholas Lund define what we're talking about here. And I want to recommend this book highly, and I will show it to you at the end that you can get all this written down. But anyway, Nicholas P. Lund, the original ending of Mark, he says that participant reference is a linguistic principle 
applied to texts in which the manner in which participants involved in a discourse are represented or encoded, quote unquote, in the lexical and grammatical forms of a language. Now what that is is just a fancy way of saying that different authors may use different ways of referring to the participants in a narrative discourse. When the story is being told about a group of people or one or two people, uh, one author may use pronouns, uh, nouns, or inflected verbs like you can do in Greek, and they may use those or they may use the personal name of the individual participants in the story. That's what they're that's what the, the, the point is, is how would, an author dis, how would an author tell this story? Would he and his style be more inclined to say he, or would he be more inclined to say Joe, or Bill, or George, or Jesus in this particular case? So that's participant reference. Now, I wish I could take credit for this. I would love to be able to tell you that I came up with this on my own, but I didn't. And I want to credit, give credit where credit is due. Once again, I'm referring to Nicholas P. Lon's book. And so I'm just going to borrow wholesale from him and cite him in full citation up front. Lon assesses every episode initial reference in all the book of Mark. Now what that means is, Mark tells a story about Jesus. Not just in chapter 16, but all through the book of Mark. Mark tells stories about Jesus one after the other. We know how that is. And whenever he tells a story, the story ends with a punchline, and then the next line is the initial, uh, the initial reference of the next episode. That is the first statement introducing the next episode. And Lon has assessed all of these in the book of Mark. And uh, here's what he's come up with. This is only a partial portion of it. But starting in chapter 1 and verse 14, Mark introduces the unit there with Jesus as the subject. But if you keep on reading through that early part of Mark and just keep going along, and by the way, I'm sure he's referring here to the critical text and not the textus receptus. So this argument is rooted in probably the critical text and not in the textus receptus or the King James or New King James, but would be reflected more likely in a newer translation. So bear that in mind if you go to check this out. So in chapter 1 and verse 14, Mark introduces the unit with Jesus as the subject. But then all the way from chapter 1 and verse 14 to chapter 3 and verse 6, he introduces each following episode with the pronoun, not Jesus' personal name. He introduces him with he or him, in English translation or in some other comparable way in the original language. Then in chapter 3 and verse 7 he begins an episode there with Jesus but then from chapter 3 and verse 7 to chapter 5 and verse 21 each following episode is introduced by the pronoun he or him. This is the pattern throughout Mark. Chapter 6 and verse 30 begins with Jesus and then the following episodes from chapter 6 and verse 31 to chapter 8 and verse 26 are introduced with he or him. Again, let me belabor the point. In chapter 9 and verse 2, it begins with Jesus and then look at this. Each intervening episode, initial episode reference from chapter 9, 3 all the way to 1427 the author introduces the next and following episodes with 
Jesus. Now then, even Daniel Wallace, who is a proponent of rejecting these verses, when talking about a different issue besides this, he belabors, or not belabors, he express, expresses a very good point that I think actually fits here, as my understanding of it is. Even Daniel Wallace notes, <coughs> pardon me, that there are 89 sequential verses in Mark 6 through 8 in the critical text that never mention Jesus by name or title. So this tells me that the, that the writer, Mark, has this proclivity for pronouns in introducing Jesus in these accounts. This comes, by the way, from lecture notes from biblicaltraining.org on page 21. Now then, in response to this, someone may say, well now look, all the examples you've noticed so far are where Jesus is the subject of the previous episode. And so it is only natural to begin the next episode with he instead of Jesus. And so, since Mark 16, 8 has the women as the subject, the next episode, starting with verse 9, really ought to begin with Jesus instead of he. And I suppose that sounds like a legitimate argument to me. That sounds pretty convincing until we get to looking more closely. And we can see that it's not quite that sewn up. Let's look at Mark 6, 42 to 45. So they all ate and were filled. Now that's the people who were fed, the multitude who were fed, you remember. They're the subject at the closing of this episode. And they, the apostles, took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. And verse 44, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Now what we've got here is the end of an episode. This is analogous, shall we say, to verse 8 in chapter 16. It's the close of a section. And then the next section begins. Now look how this one ends, though. They, they the crowd, they the twelve, and those, again, the crowd who had eaten. They are the subject at the end of this episode. Now look how the next episode begins. It says in verse 45, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go, go before him to the other side, etc. So here's a case where you've got the subject of the closing episode being one person or another group of people, and then the very next episode begins with Jesus as the subject, but he doesn't use the first name, he uses the pronoun, he, and not the name Jesus. You say, oh, well, that's just an anomaly. Uh, maybe that just happened. But look, in chapter 7 and verses 30 and 31, and when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And there's the end of the episode. And look at the subject. She is the mother of the daughter who was in turmoil and whose daughter was healed and overcame the, the condition she was in as a result of the miraculous powers of Jesus. And then the next episode, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region. So it's not uncommon for Mark to end an episode talking about one person or persons with certain pronouns and language and then continue right on in and introducing the next episode with Jesus as the primary subject and yet he has he as the, 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 the point of reference or the, the way of referencing his participant in the story, hence participant reference like we said. Again in Mark chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. 
After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Okay, well there's the end of the episode. And notice here, they. And they here in the plural refers to these chief priests and scribes back here in the previous verse. Now, that ends the episode. And then the next one begins, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he, as he, sat at the table. A woman came, etc. So we find then Jesus being introduced again and again in these... Uh, um, introductory statements of, the, of each succeeding episode introduced by he, even if he is not the subject of the end of the previous episode. Well, that's exactly what you've got in Mark chapter 16. You've got the same thing here. So what we've got in this so-called abrupt transition is not necessarily so non-Markan as it might at first seem to be. At least I think this is a, a, a weighty argument. I know there are scholars who might hear this video later or have they, some graduate student come to them and say, Dr. So-and-so, did you hear what that guy said on YouTube? They may not find it convincing. I don't know. But I find this convincing. And I haven't seen any reply to it. Uh, Nicholas Lund's book came out in 2014. There may be replies to it. There probably are. I just haven't seen them. But anyway, let's look at Mark 16. So they, the women, who came with the spices to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, they went out quickly from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of episode. Now some try to say, well, really it's not the end of the episode. Well, it was in Mark's mind, but to the copyist who made up verses 9 through 20, he's trying to make it part of the same episode. And I'm saying, well, I'm not sure it really is the same episode. I'll talk about that in a moment. But here, if Mark wrote verses 9 through 20, we find the way he references Jesus in the next verse is not different than he does in other places in the book of Mark when he makes a transition from one episode to another. Okay, so uh, here they is the subject. This is the women who bought the spices. They tremble and then they said nothing, for they were afraid. Now then, verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, so this looks to me like it's not so much of a bump in the road compared to the other kind of uh, traveling experience we have as we go throughout the rest of the book of Mark. Okay? So then, that's one of the features of abruptness. I've addressed that part, maybe not exhaustively, but enough to make the point for the purposes of our study. Number two, in verse 9, Mary Magdalene, this is the criticism now, in verse 9, Mary Magdalene receives a fuller identification after she is already introduced in verse 1. Look at it. Verse 1 of Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And then verse 9. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appear, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven de demons. Now here's the criticism. The criticism says, well, you know, if, if Mark really wrote verses 9 through 20, and if he really were the good writer that we believe him to be, he wouldn't have made a mistake like this. In other words, it's clear that what you've got here is a copyist who thought something ought to be added to Mark's already intended ending at verse 8, 
and said, you know, something needs to be added on here, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with something that sounds good and works for this passage. But he just wasn't quite skillful enough or savvy enough to recognize, hey, I don't need to reintroduce Mary Magdalene because the author that I'm adding to has already introduced her, and so I'm making a mistake here when I add this extra detail about a person who's already been introduced seven verses earlier, or eight verses earlier. That's the argument. All right, well, let's take a look at this. Uh, Dr. Bruce Terry, who has a good presentation of some of this material on his website, and I think it's just a page. Well, I think it's actually on a, a school website, but anyway, a university. But he makes this point, which I think is interesting and important and relevant. In Mark 3, same author, in Mark 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 16, he introduces Simon, whom he surnamed Peter. Now, we get this little extra detail about Peter here after Peter has already been mentioned four times in the book of Mark in these verses. Uh, also, same thing regarding James and John in Mark 3.17. James and John, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, after they've already been mentioned twice in the book of Mark. Now, I suppose the argument could be made that these latter passages, these latter references, 3.16 and 3.17, are actually within that section where the list of the apostles' names is given. And in that list, he's simply filling out and explaining more about their names. I suppose that's a fair observation. But at least it is obvious here that Mark is not above introducing more information about particular characters in the story after he's already extensively described them in narrative circumstances prior to this. So in that respect, it's not unlike Mark to do such a thing. Also, Nicholas Lunn, whom I'm going to keep referencing, uh, makes this observation concerning this point, which may be the stronger argument, and that is that there is this thing termed Hebraic narrative in which a fuller description often appears later than the first introduction. In other words, what Mark is doing, although he's probably writing for a, a Roman or a Latin audience, his, uh, his, his Hebraisms are coming through, nonetheless, in his way of mentioning Mary. But let's look at what uh, the reference is here. If you go back to Joshua, in chapter 1 and verse 1, Joshua is called the son of Nun. That's the way he's introduced at the beginning of the book. And then if you keep reading right on through all the way to the end, after all that's been told about Joshua, then it identifies him more fully. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. So it looks like that at least the author of Joshua could reserve a longer description for the character involved after the character is first introduced. The same with Gehazi, Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 4 and verse 12. Gehazi, his servant, 2 Kings 5 and verse 20, the next chapter, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. Now, why didn't the writer tell us all this up front rather than waiting till later? Well, maybe it's a Hebraistic style, stylistic way of expression, and that it has more than just style at heart, but it's part of the rhetorical effect of the story as it unfolds and is uh, described and uh, laid out. Now then, there are more descriptions, more examples than this. I just cut it off here in order to move on. So, Mark 16, here it is again. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and these other women bought spices to come and anoint him. 
Then, in verse 9, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And this is not unlike the kind of um, participant reference, or not, that's really not the right term, uh, not unlike the way it is elsewhere, not only in Mark, but in other passages of Scripture. But I'm going to go on from here. The next thing we want to look at then is the third thing, the words, now when he arose, and the position of the word first in verse 9, the argument is, well, those words would be appropriate to introduce a comprehensive narrative. They'd work better up in verse 1. But they're out of place in a continuation of the narrative at the end of verse 8, starting in verse 9. Here's what I'm talking about. Down in verse 8, so when they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, they were troubled and amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then the next verse says, or there's the end of the episode, the next verse says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And the issue is, these terms right here, when he arose and first. And the idea is that these would work better for smoothness of transition, would work better elsewhere in the chapter, earlier in the chapter than here. That's a succinct way as I can come up with to make the point. Alright? So, let's ask ourselves the question though. Is verses 9 through 20 really supposed to be a continuation of verses 8, 1 through 8, or is it actually a next episode? And I think it's another episode. I think it's just simply, yes, basic same thematic information in a broad sense, but I'm going to demonstrate that it's not the same issue in the more specific sense. In other words, verses 9 through 20 does in a sense change the subject from what it is in verses 1 through 8, even though both are about generally the resurrection of Christ. So it centers upon resurrection evidence. I think most of us are aware of the fact that res resurrection evidence, as it is depicted for us in the Bible, basically rests on two tiers, or two foundations. Number one, the evidence of the resurrection can be demonstrated from the empty tomb. You have a tomb that had a body in it, and that tomb doesn't have a body anymore. Where is the body? The second part of resurrection evidence is eyewitnesses. Once that tomb is empty, that body could have been taken anywhere. So you have to have someone who sees it later on to provide the second level of, uh, level of uh, verification of a resurrection. And you know what? It looks to me like that's exactly what you've got in verses 1 through 8, verses 9, verses, verses 9 through 20. Verses 1 through 8 is the empty tomb. That's the point of verses 1 through 8. Look, verse 6, the angel told those women when they came in so nervous and wondering about how that stone was going to be rolled out of the way. And they got there, it was already rolled out of the way. And they entered into that dark tomb and got back in there and they saw this young man who said what he said to them. He said, he is risen. He is not here. He's saying, the tomb is empty. You came looking for a tomb with a body in it, and you have arrived at a tomb that doesn't have a body in it. That's the point of verses 1 through 8. That is an episode. The next one, well, it ends by saying that they were afraid, which seems a, a very anticlimactic way of ending the gospel. 
And I'll say more about that before we close. But verses 9 through 20 is another narrative. And its emphasis, broadly speaking, is still the resurrection. But its specific material is more, more direct toward a particular aspect of the broader subject. It's the eyewitnesses. Look at verse six, or verse nine, rather. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Verse twelve, he appeared. Verse fourteen, he appeared. So this is an emphasis upon eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses here do indeed demonstrate, I think, that we're dealing with two different narratives. And the fact that we're dealing with two different narratives here indicates the fact that if there is any abrupt transition, it's not because a, name, a nameless copyist uh, sort of sloppily added on verses 9 through 20, but that it is an actual inherent intentional feature of the author. And I want to tell you, get Lund's book and read what he says about the references and the interconnection and the intertextuality and intratextuality as they like to throw around these big terms about how the, the, the last nine verses, twelve verses of Mark chapter 16 actually coincide and reflect other things earlier in the book of Mark, things we don't have time to get into. But the point is, I don't think it's a big deal to call this actually a new narrative with a different emphasis on the same subject. Okay? So, with that point in made, we've covered the abrupt transition between, between verses 8 and 9. Number two, unique words and phrases in verses 9 through 20. Now, this is an argument that's been made for decades. I'm going to, again, reference Lund, but you can find this information in other books. I've looked at it. Uh, other books that this argument has been made all the way back to Dean Bergen back in the 1800s with his book, many of you have the book called The Last Twelve Verses of Mark. Bergen made this argument, so it's not new to Lund, and I would be a fool to stand up here and act like that it was something I came up with, because it isn't. But it's persuasive. In fact, even James White, in his book, uh, The King James Version Only Controversy, which is also a good book, by the way, uh, even he acknowledges that some of this internal evidence and these language and vocabulary and style and syntax arguments are weak and all, all actually somewhat subjective. And I think there's probably some truth to that. So we advance then to the second part, unique words and phrases in verses 9 through 20. The Net Bible, whose chief editor was Daniel Wallace, I quote again, says the vocabulary, the syntax, and style are decidedly non-marking. Well, let's take a look at that. There are usually about a, a, a list of about 17 words that are usually provided here as the argument or the basis for this argument. Here is the Greek of verses 9 through 20. Here is the English translation. This is the New King James Version on the right. When we're talking about this passage in Greek, we're talking about 166 words right there. Of those 166, 17 are said to be not used anywhere else in the book of Mark. And since Mark didn't use those words anywhere else, that shows someone else wrote verses 9 through 20. Well, let's take a look at some of these. Now again, uh, this is a list that has been uh, 
compiled and analyzed a thousand different ways. I just want to introduce you to the highlights of it. We go down the list. I'm not going to read them all out loud here, but verse 9, it's on the first day of the week. You know, he says on the first day of the week, in verse 9, he says, protisavatu. In verse 1, he says, miatu savatu. Or miaton savatu, I'm sorry. He uses a different word right here. Proti here, mia in verse 1. Oh, that's a problem. Now, again, I think you could just about preach a whole sermon, if you want to call it a sermon, or a whole lesson on that point right there. But we're not going to. But the point you see, this is the kind of arguments that are made. Verse 1 uses mia, which means one of the Sabbaths, which means the first day of the week. Here it's protisavatu, meaning the first day of the week. The difference between one and first. I said, well, look, that proves that Mark didn't write this because Mark, though we know, wrote verse 1, said this differently. Well, that, that's another issue. Let me just move on through the list. Okay, verse 10, the verb for going. Verse 10, the phrase, those who had been with him. Verse 10, the, ter the verb mourning, as in weeping and mourning. Verse 11, the uh, passive verb, had been seen. Verse 11, disbelieved. Verse 12, form. Verse 14, later. Verse 15, 11, and on down the list. I'm not going to read them all off. Down to here. There are 17 words here, and I'm not going to comment on any of this. Uh, except this one right here. Let me just make a point here. May I say that to use this, and it's included in list after list after list for decades, to say Mark didn't use the word 11 in anywhere else in the other 16 chapters of the book of Mark, so he must not have written verses 9 through 20. Now I realize the argument they're making doesn't rely totally on that, but I want to just say <coughs> This is stacking the deck. This kind of argument is disingenuous. I know that's a bold word. And I'm not trying to impute motive to people. But scholarship wants to be precise. And scholarship wants to be fair. And I agree. And I appreciate that. You know, this is stacking the deck. I'm sorry. I don't know how else to look at that. Look, Mark used the word one in chapter 6 and verse 15. He used the word 2 in 6 and verse 7. He used the word 3 in 8.31, 4 in 12.27, 5 in 8.19, 6 in 9 in verse 2, 7 in verse eight, uh, chapter 8 in verse 20, the number 10 in verse 14 of chapter 10, and 12 in 5.25, and 40 in chapter 1 in verse 13. Does Mark not know about the number 11? That is not an argument to prove that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. All right. Again, I quote Mr. Lund. Again, I can't take credit for some of these analyses, but look at other sections of the book of Mark that are of comparable length. The story of the healed woman in chapter 5 is 161 words. Remember, 9 through 11 of 16 is 166 words. Notice, you get all of these words in that section that are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark. Nine words in this passage are not anywhere else in the book of Mark. Now, there's not a textual issue about this passage. There's nothing, no manuscript issue like we looked at in our first session. There's not anything in there in, in the manuscript issue about the, this passage, but the argument that 
the absence of some words in Mark 16:9 through 20 somehow proves that he didn't write other things or didn't didn't write that verse indicates that uh, we have some discrepancy here when we think about this because here is a section again 161 words these words are not used anywhere else here's another the death of John the Baptist chapter 6 172 words all of these words are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark there's 12 of them down here in chapter 9 and verse 2, uh, 2 through 10 157 Greek words there are 11 of those that are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark the teaching about divorce in chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 has 153 words there are 12 of those 153 words that are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark Jesus before the Sanhedrin in chapter 14 verses 55 and 56 has 179 words and none of these words occur anywhere else in the book of Mark the crucifixion account in chapter 15 has 115 words in the Greek language none of these these are all in that passage but these are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark so this argument as I think James White is correct this argument indicates that uh, this uh, internal evidence argument is very subjective and has some holes in it as, as far as I'm able to understand it so unique words and phrases in verses 9 through 20 okay I don't know how long I've been going, but I'm just going to keep going. That's what they told me to do. So, switch to number three. Mark's use of parts of speech. Now, when you start talking about parts of speech and grammar, people start getting nervous and remembering how terribly uncomfortable they were in third grade trying to work through those grammatical exercises. I hated that when I was a kid, and so I understand that. And moreover, on this point, we're going to be using percentages and mathematics, which just only makes it all the worse. <laughs> but the argument, I think, is very persuasive if we can follow it and if I can communicate it clear enough for it to be followed. Parts of speech we know are verbs, nouns, pronouns, adjectives, adverbs, conjunctions, determiners, which is articles like the word the in English, T-H-E, prepositions, numerals, and interjection. Now, it's amazing how people have analyzed the Greek Bible. And this is just demonstration of that, and it didn't originate with Lunn. He just happens to take it a little bit of a step further on this particular point in Mark 16. Uh, whenever we look at the parts of speech, we're going to compare Mark 16 to other parts of the book of Mark relative to the range of these parts of speech. All right? How does Mark use the parts of speech in the list I just gave you? How does he use these parts of speech in the concerned passage? How does it fit into the range of such usage elsewhere in the book of Mark? Well, let's look at the total of the book of Mark. V is for verbs. If you take, the book of Mark is divided up into 22 sections. And when you take all those 22 sections, you find and analyze the whole book of Mark, Mark uses verbs almost 32% of the time. That's the high end, analyzing all the parts of the book of Mark. On the low end, it's 12.86%. Each section divided up and analyzed separately. Uh, verbs are used this much in, uh, in, uh, in the high, high end. On the low end, 12%. Nouns is this range. Ad, uh, adjectives and adverbs, the C means content. Content, adjectives, and adverbs. The range is this. Uh, the, 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 in other words, the section with the most content, adverbs, and adjectives has 7.48%. The least is actually 0%.
And then you do that all the way across with the various parts of speech that were uh, listed at the beginning. Now then, what you've got here now is a range. And so any one particular passage that you want to ask yourself the question, does the passage actually fit with the other parts of the book of Mark, you can compare it to this range. And so we have Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 that we're analyzing here and thinking about and considering. Let's look at it. Mark 16, 9 through 20 has this range within itself. Now the question is, do any of these fall way outside this range? And you know the interesting point is, is all of them are a green. All of them are a go. They all fit the range. Okay? How about the Freerologion? Well, the Freerologion, interestingly, also fits the range. The shorter ending, interestingly, and this is the second of the two endings that everyone agrees is not original. The second, uh, the shorter ending has these that fall outside the range. So this is not definitive proof that Mark did or did not write Mark 16, 9 through 20. What it is, is saying, it's saying this, that if Mark did write verses 9 through 20, we would expect it to fall within the range. And it does. Let's consider these parts of speech from another angle. And this is the one I think I find uh, to be the most persuasive. That is the hierarchy of the parts of speech in the different parts of uh, the book of Mark. Which parts of speech did Mark use the most relative to the others? Now that's a subtle difference. I know we're dealing with math here. And you all didn't come for a math lesson. But Mark 16, 9 through 20 uses verbs more than it uses any other part of speech in 16, 9 through 20. It uses verbs second. It has 29 out of 166 words are nouns. It has 20 out of 166 words are the article, the. Conjunctions 19 on down the list for at least eight of these parts of speech. Now, to make this simple and short, let's just look at the top three. Verbs, nouns, determiners. That is the order or the hierarchy with which Mark uses, or I should say, that the parts of speech fall into this hierarchy in chapter 9, 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, how about the other sections of the book of Mark? What kind of hierarchy do we find there? Well, of all of the different sections of the book of Mark, the most common is to have verbs first, nouns second, conjunctions third. That's different right here, the same here. Now that in and of itself is somewhat significant. The same difference here, verbs is the most in all the other 23 sections as you have in Mark 16. Nouns is second most as you have in all the 22 sections elsewhere versus Mark 16. The only variant here is that determiners are slightly more or somewhat more in 16 verses 9 through 20 versus 22 other sections of the book of Mark. But that's only for those uh, the hierarchy that occurs the most times. Now, look at the second one. This is the one that occurs the second most in the book of Mark. And look, verbs, nouns, determiners, verbs, nouns, determiners. So that tells us right there that on this analysis, on this perspective, Mark is well within 
what we would expect it to be in Mark 16, 9 through 20. What we would expect to find if Mark really did Mark write verses 9 through 20. And just for a little fuller picture and to give a little better analysis, this is the third most common hierarchy throughout the book of Mark. Verbs, nouns, pronouns. Notice, still the same in the first two components. But there's variation in the third. So, really, when you look at the first two levels, verbs and nouns in the hierarchy, Mark 16, 9 through 20, still matches all three of the most common forms in the book of Mark. Now there's more. Bear with me. We can get some coffee a little later. But the shorter ending, now this is remarkable. This speaks, to my mind, volumes. When you apply the same analysis to the shorter ending, you came out with the very result that everybody expects to find. Nobody thinks Mark's, Mark wrote the shorter ending that I read at the beginning of the last section, uh, session. Nobody thinks Mark wrote that. In fact, you can just read it in an English translation, and in many ways you can look at that and say, that doesn't sound like anything else I've ever seen in the Bible. The same is true especially, I think, of the freer logion, but that'll come up in a moment. But the shorter ending has this analysis. It ties for number one at nouns and determiners. The second most common form of speech is prepositions, and the third ties for content, adjectives, and adverbs slash conjunctions. That's the hierarchy in the shorter ending. You know what? You look through all of the 27 other, 22 other sections in the book of Mark, and what you find is none of the other 22 sections follow this pattern. That's what you're going to think you would expect to find if Mark did not write the shorter ending. And that's what everybody knows. And everyone believes and agrees. That's quite different from the analysis we get out of this compared to this and to these. <coughs> oh, excuse me, that's a terrible sound. The Freer Logion, here's its pattern, nouns, uh, de uh, determiners and verbs. Doesn't match this. Doesn't match any of these. Now the only thing is the freer logion does match two on this score, on this analysis, does match uh, two of the 22 other sections of the book of Mark. Alright? Two out of 22. Then this one up here, Mark 16, matches the second most. I should have gotten the, the, the number of occurrences, but I didn't. Sorry, I didn't pull that information out. Uh, so I think what we can see here is this analysis, in my mind, speaks heavily on this matter. Now then, I'm not going to bore you with any more math. And I want to get on to making my last point, because I, want, I know we'll want to spend a little time on this. But uh, here we're looking at a divergence. And again, the longer ending comes out to 16.73 versus the shorter ending, a very high percentage. And the freer logion, a little lower, but yet still high compared to this. But we'll look at that maybe if you want to in detail. Lunn draws this conclusion. Such a result, as all the analysis we've just looked at, such a result is not offered as proof of the Markan authorship of 169 through 20, but is just one single piece of linguistic evidence that points to the possibility that these disputed verses could in fact have been written by Mark. 
And when you take into account all the other analysis, analysis that actually we aren't even discussing in these presentations, uh, it's clear that there is some strong support for the book of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Well, I'm going to finish out with this last point here, and maybe, maybe this should have been question should have been asked and addressed at the very beginning of the session. But I figured it could probably come up in the question and answer, so I thought, well, we'll just let it wait till last, and then we'll address the questions here that I'm going to bring up. And I hope that uh, uh, I can cover it sufficiently in the time that we have remaining. Okay, so why does this problem exist? Well, let me make a couple of points here. It is not because someone wants to get rid of verse 16. Through the years, I've heard brethren make this argument and this accusation. And I sympathize with them because I know a lot of people would like to get rid of verse 16. But I really don't think that's what's driving this issue. And I really don't. And I think we need to be careful when we start accusing people that we don't know and whose names we don't know and whose knowledge about these issues we don't know and accusing them of things that we don't know. Uh, we're judging people when we do that. And they may not be members of the body of Christ, but that doesn't make it okay. They may not be members of the church or in the brotherhood, but that doesn't make it okay. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't accuse people of doing things they're not doing. And I've read a lot on this, and I have yet to find the motive of getting rid of verse 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. I have yet to find that as the main reason why this is an issue. Now, in James White's book, uh, the King James Version Only Controversy, he does list verse 16, as, but he only states it as a cooperating argument. He doesn't rest the opposition of these verses to a desire to get rid of verse 16. So I think we need to, I think we need to abandon that accusation and let's be more accurate and fair and right in the statements that we make. Really what I found, here's the one that gets everyone. If anyone is uncomfortable with any verse in this section and would think that, boy, it's a good thing Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not original because that verse 18 just really makes me really uncomfortable. It is, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Daniel Wallace goes out of his way uh, for an extended period of time in some of his lectures to disparagingly speak of the snake handlers and the hicks, as he calls them, out in the countries and counties of West Virginia, and speaks about how wonderful a thing it is to be able to get rid of this verse so they don't have this verse anymore. This is the verse they don't like. This is the one that comes first. So I guess I'm repeating myself. Let's make the argument rest on truth and not on a first response rejection or first response or knee-jerk reaction that people want to just get rid of verse 16. If they just wanted to get rid of verse 16, then why did they get rid of 12 verses instead of one? Number two, it is not because modern, of modern bias against biblical inspiration. Some of the people who work on these issues and have devoted their lives to these issues are people who are committed 
to the inspiration of the Bible. Now, I realize we may not agree on all points of what the, what the Bible means and what it teaches, but they do believe in the inspiration of the Bible, many of them. And in fact, predominantly these days, the leading textual critics are conservatives, not the liberals. Now, they're in there, but it's the conservatives, not the liberals, who are the ones who are in the lead these days, in the last 50 years or so, 20, 30 years, in textual criticism. Number three, it is not because modern translators want to water down the Word of God. Number four, it is not because theological liberals want to deny the resurrection of Christ. If they did, why do they just get rid of Mark 16? Why stop there? So, I'm chiding everyone a little bit, I know, and I don't mean to be so blunt, but I think we really need to know what we are Make, saying before we say some things. I do though think that it is because, let's just be honest, and I don't know how else to say, it, to say it or what analysis to make, it is because there is an undeniable disruption in the manuscript tradition. It's there. And we can't ignore it. And we can't defend the truth by pretending it's not there. And we can't uphold the Word of God by First, pretending it's not there, and then proceeding to build arguments on that assumption. Because there is an undeniable disruption in the textual tradition, as we've pointed out, and as we indicated earlier in the first discourse. So, it is really an historical debate, not a doctrinal one. And it's really a question about historical evidence and how to interpret the evidence. And I believe that as a people, if we are going to defend Mark 16, 9 through 20, we need to marshal arguments that are rooted in the kinds of things that we've presented here today in order that we may base our arguments in fact, in truth, and in reality, and not simply an emotional response that we feel good about once we make it, and then we can go on and just forget all about the issue and feel that we're okay with it. Because in the future, when they take it completely out of Mark 16 in future translations. And I think that's, as I said, for those of you who are not here earlier, I believe that's where it's headed. Eventually you're going to see a translation, NIV or something, and maybe not just the NIV, published without these verses. So the question is how do we interpret the historical evidence? And that's what we need to do. We need to become familiar enough with the historical evidence to make the argument and that's the only way we can deal with this issue. So let's consider some options. And these are some things to think about. Option number one is that one that was advanced in the 19th century that Mark wrote verses originally after verse 8 that those verses got lost. And I'm going to hit these quick and we can deal with it in the question and answer if you want to. Mark originally wrote verses mater material after verse 8 but it originally got lost. But since verse 8 did not seem a viable ending then some later scribe added the long ending, verses 9 through 20. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Now that's not the way they explain it anymore, however. But the problem with this is, the loss would have had to occur with the autograph. The loss would have had to occur at the time and with the copy that Mark wrote in his hand. At the time Mark wrote the Gospel, they were still writing on scrolls. The Codex was invented and utilized by Christians predominantly, interestingly, around the turn of the first century. 
At the time Mark wrote, it was still written on scrolls. So Mark wrote out the whole book of Mark, and the verse 1 is at the left, verse, chapter, chapter 1 is at the left, chapter 16 is at the right. When he got done, he started down here and rolled it up so that chapter 16 is on the inside. So it seems unlikely that if that practice was followed in the writing of Mark, it seems unlikely that the 16th or the last part of the chapter would have been lost from Mark's autograph, his original copy. But that's what the 19th century scholars said. Now then, and I just explained that, if the gospel was written on a scroll, how did the ending get lost? And again, we're not going into all the detail here we could, I'm just hitting the highlights. Number two, that is, Mark ended at verse 8 in, because he was somehow prohibited from finishing. That is, maybe because of persecution, he couldn't quite finish it. Maybe he died before he issued his final version, his final edition to the public. And so his gospel was issued incomplete. So it wasn't intentional, this option says, but it was issued incomplete. Well, the problem with this, and then, of course, then somebody else wanted to add the verses later, maybe even Mark himself. The problem with this option, friends, is it's just made up out of whole cloth. I mean, anybody can come up with something like this. The reality is, it's certainly possible, the scenario that we've just described is certainly possible, but there is zero evidence for it. Maybe that evidence will turn up in time, but there is none for it now. So this one doesn't seem quite to work. Option number three is the one that everyone supports today. Mark intended to end at verse 8. This is the predominant view. My main criticism of this is that many explanations are offered by literary criticism as to the rhetorical effect that Mark had in mind and that he intended to convey by stopping at verse 8 and shocking everyone with the ending at verse 8. Again, the problem with this is, in my mind, many of these explanations are simply not satisfying. They're not satisfying, and maybe we can look at some of those. They don't agree about this either. Those who say that Mark ended for this, at verse 8 for this reason, and oh, he was trying to communicate this thing with, for another reason, these, these explanations don't agree. This is suspect. Makes the position suspect. Uh, and not only that, but if Mark really did end at verse 8, think about this. If Mark really did end at verse 8, then a lot of people simply misunderstood him. Because somebody, according to this position, somebody thought verses 9 through 20 needed to be added. This tells me there's a great weakness in the inspired document that ends at verse 8 that leaves everyone confused about what he means. The modern scholars can't seem to agree on why Mark ended this way, but they're sure he did. And then in the ancient world, when they were still copying by hand, a whole lot of people think, you know, this just needs, something needs to be added on here. So that doesn't make sense to me. Furthermore, there have been no commentators, and there are commentaries, you know, going all the way back to the second century. A lot of people aren't familiar with them, but there are a lot of commentaries that go back to the second century. You know, there is not one commentator for 20, 19 centuries 
that takes this position and explains verse 8 as the ending until you get to literary criticism in the last half of the 20th century. This makes this suspect. I'm, I'm just honest with you. And I know people watching on the YouTube who are not familiar with our brotherhood and fellowship may think that I'm just off my rocker. But it just does not seem satisfying. You know, even Westcott and Hort did not believe it. F.F. Bruce in the 20th century did not believe it. Bruce Metzger, who just died a couple of decades ago. These are all big text critic guys. They didn't believe Mark ended at verse 8. They believed that what was after verse 8 originally was lost, and 9 through 20 was added. And T.F. France says this. I thought this quote was worth making. The natural response to verse 8 is surely to assume... The natural response to verse 8 is surely to assume that this apologetically damaging anti-climax cannot be the end. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And this is the last one, and I really am about finished. Option four, the long ending is Mark's original ending. That is, verses 9 through 20, Mark really did write, but it somehow became detached from a copy or copies that became the basis for other copies. This is the one I think best explains the circumstances. If so, this divergence in the manuscript tradition originated in Egypt, and everyone agrees with this, by the way, whether you believe 9 through 20 is original or added by a later scribe, that disruption originated in Egypt because the manuscripts and the ancient translations seem to have been influenced by Egyptian manuscripts and translations that led to the uh, missing verses. Now, the problem with this is, is you have to ask the question, was the removal, was the disappearance of verses 9 through 20 a detachment, deliberate detachment, or was it accidental? If it's deliberate, Lund discusses some interesting early Egyptian heresies, that could have could explain, and again it's just a theory, that could explain why people in Egypt, where it is acknowledged by scholarship in general, Mark had its most extensive influence in the beginning. There are, according to Lund, heresies that could have accounted for someone back then in that place and time wanting those verses removed and did so, but was not able to strike them from all the manuscript evidence. The other op op uh, possibility is that the last page was just lost. And that, in my mind, as I close, that's the position that I've come to. I reserve the right to change my mind. But as I said earlier, we're not talking here about the original part of Mark being lost in the original autograph written on a scroll. We're talking about after Mark chapter 1, 1 through chapter 16 and verse 20 were written on a scroll, rolled up with chapter 16 in the middle, and then copied and copied and copied, and then later on copied just a few decades later on codices in book form man manuscripts, there are already rolls and codices with Mark 16, 9 through 20 in them, but it's entirely possible for the last page of a codex to become lost, and people later on copying that manuscript with the lost page would be forced to stop at verse 8 in their copies. And as they copied, they had to stop there, and that's all they had, because they didn't have any other copies. 
And it wasn't like it is today where you have all kinds of books published by print like we have today. And so that seems to me to be a, a, a way to account for the absence of verses 9 through 20 in some manuscripts. And thus the tradition of its absence was rooted in that. So I'm going to conclude here with my uh, conclusion that we have two options. Number one, Mark intended to end at verse 8 intended to end at verse 8 or he wrote verses 9 through 20. As I've said, the arguments that Mark intended to end at verse 8 are not persuasive. The only other viable alternative is that Mark's 9 through 20 is Mark's own inspired ending. That's it.